Welcome back, friends, to Faith Beyond Sunday. I'm your host, Mitch Connolly. I'm glad that you've all chosen to join me again for another great conversation. This one is brand new. Literally, this conversation just happened a couple days ago. My awesome guest, Eric Nykamp, agreed this last week to join me on the podcast. We got together, we recorded, we had a conversation, and now it's going out to your ears. Eric is a fellow pastor, and together we talk about what does it mean for us as pastors, as Christians, as people to be an ally. I learn a lot in this conversation from Eric and just from hearing his heart, and I hope that you will too. So without any further ado, let's get into this conversation. So thank you for joining us on another episode of Faith Beyond Sunday. I'm really excited uh, to introduce to you today a, a new friend of mine. This is the first time beyond text that me and <laughs> this guy are getting to sit down and have some conversation. And I'm really excited because that was one of the points that I wanted to have about this podcast is that this podcast would be a door for me to meet some new people and have some great conversation. So today I would like to introduce to you Eric Nykamp. Welcome, Eric, to the show. Thanks. So, Eric, uh, for any of our listeners out there who aren't familiar with you, can you give us uh, a little bit of an introduction? Who is Eric? What does Eric do? Anything that you feel is pertinent? Sure. Well, I guess uh, if you were going to say what I do professionally, um, mm -hmm. I, ha I work for my church, and I yeah. love that. It's a job that um, pays very little and carries a great deal of satisfaction, which is which is a really good thing. Um, hmm. I am a worship director, which during COVID is really, really interesting, <laughs> especially yeah. with streaming church and all the things that go with that. So, well, and that's the that's the one thing. Yeah, at, at, at the very least, you're streaming because that's the one thing they say is the worst if you're getting together is the singing oh, the aspect. Sing so, oh, have you ever? tried to sing on zoom it's the worst thing ever it, <laughs> oh i can't even imagine it, just the delays oh, it sounds and... like, like <laughs> and the screen doesn't know where to focus so the the little rectangle mm -hmm. keeps jumping around it's terrible it's absolutely abysmal <laughs> so don't do that if you if you're thinking about trying that but a part of my church job is um that I get to be the producer for the Antioch podcast, which is a podcast mm -hmm. where we have conversations about biblical anti-racism. And it's weird as a white guy to be in charge of something like that. Uh, yeah. There's a whole story where that, where the podcast initially was going to be one thing and ended up being a podcast that talked about race and racism. And at which point um, as a white guy, I was like, uh, I really should not be fronting this. I really need a team and I had to pull a team together and that took a lot of time. So I love where the podcast is now. Um, but there was a journey with that. Yeah. 
And uh, we had Susie on last yes. week, and um, Susie, uh, like I, I went to Susie and I said, "Hey, like, uh, give give me some recommendations." And uh, she threw out your name, which is uh, why we're able to be sitting down and talking right now. I didn't ask Susie this, but I am kind of interested. I've listened to your to the Antioch podcast. How many years have you guys been doing Antioch podcast? So now? we started um, in response to like Ferguson, Missouri, and some of those kind of Mm -hmm. things where um, Susie and I both work for a multiracial church and realizing that, you know, there's these justice conversations that people needed to have, but weren't necessarily sure how to have. And so by the time we got the podcast going, it was in the run-up to the election of 26, well, it was 2015. And I don't know if what it was like where you were, but after Donald Trump was elected, it was like a giant crevice opened in our congregation. Yeah. And people were saying, I'm not coming to church this Sunday. I can't worship with so-and-so, or it became really ugly. And the Antioch podcast came about right during that time, which is, that was an ugly time to try to start a podcast about anti-racism. Let me just say, yeah, it was, it yeah. was hard. Yeah, I don't think that on, on wherever you land on the political spectrum, uh, I think you'd it'd be hard to find somebody that would say that these past four years have not been extremely divisive, right? Like intense. Yes. Um, so yes. I, I hear that. Uh, I think I think many pastors out there would are probably nodding their head and, and just anybody listening are probably nodding their head at that and understanding that. So, um, fantastic. Well, we're, I, we're starting to get into some of the weeds of, uh, something. So let's, <laughs> let's, before we do that, I gotta, I gotta do it before we jump into the topic itself. We got to play a game. This podcast came together very quickly. So I literally asked you like five minutes ago to bring to the table a story that takes about two minutes to share. If you can, without like giving like everything away in the story, can you give us like a one sentence synopsis of what story, what the story is that you're going to tell? If you wonder if a burning paper airplane will extinguish itself before it lands, the answer is yes. I've had some great synopsis for these for these stories. Again, this is one that I hope uh, that we get to hear in full because here is the game. We're going to play a game called Story Timer. I'm going to give you two minutes, Eric, to share this story. However, the catch is, at any point, with anything that you say in this story, I am allowed to ask you clarifying questions. Uh, And to the best of your ability, you have to stop and answer my question. The point is, let's see if you can finish your story within two minutes. Uh, If you finish, you win, and the audience wins because you get to complete your story. If you don't finish, I win, and the audience loses because they won't get to hear the rest of your story. <laughs> uh, you think you got this? You think you can do it? I think I it? got it. Okay. All right, perfect. So I'm going to give you two minutes starting now. My wife and I were driving home from church in What's two separate cars, name? Elam, and when on the way home from church, uh, we decided in my your car that name is Madison what? North, and on the way home, my children and I had a discussion about whether if you lit a burning a paper airplane on fire and threw it, if it would extinguish itself before it landed. We raced home, got out of the car, made a paper airplane. By lit- raced home, did you speed at all while you were uh, driving? I played the fifth, 
and <laughs> on the way home, it was January. Our lawn. How was much of a frozen. commute is it on the way home? About twenty minutes normally, and okay. we lit the paper plant on fire, threw it before mom got home. It did extinguish itself in the front yard, in the snow. Did any of the? Oh, there was snow. There was snow, and so that was the only reason we thought it would be safe. And it is a story that we love to tell around the dinner table. Dang, I knew you were gonna get there. You, you, you didn't even leave space for me to ask questions. You just were on a roll. I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> Great. You have all. You have uh, completed your story just like Susie did last week. Well done. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm sure that's uh, that was a good memory with your kids that you is probably constantly brought up. I feel like there's a problem with that, though. Like, can you now going forward ever like make paper airplanes with your kids and not set them on fire? I feel like if I feel like that would always be the end goal for. See, now we know that like because the big debate was. Will it extinguish itself from the force of the wind on the plane? And we just. You know, it's important to trust science. And the only way you can trust science is if you experiment. That's right. So we thought this this was something we had we had to try it. So Yes. Fantastic. You you finished right under a minute. So well done. Wow. I think that was the the quickest uh we've had um for story timer. Great job, Eric. Perfect. With that <laughs> as a as a perfect transition, right, into our topic. Uh, today, um, Eric, I wanted us to have a conversation about, so uh, both in light of current events, uh, within a world where racial tensions have not just all of a sudden been created, they've been there, uh, for really since the, the start of, if we're talking about America, since the start of America, um, long history of that, but, uh, currently, obviously, with current events, with the death of George Floyd, with protests, with riots, um, there's a lot that has been kind of like what you were saying with uh, the election of, of Donald Trump uh, that has been brought uh, to the front. Uh, it's it's on everybody's minds. Uh, it's on the news uh, every night. Um, yeah. The discussion, I, f- I think, is important for us to have. Um, at, for me, as as a as a white man, for you as a, uh, as a white man, for us as people who, I mean, we are also both pastors. We are also both Christians. Um, how do we, in all of this, how do we be an ally uh, to uh, both our black um, and people of color um, brothers and sisters in Christ, but just to other people in general how do we do this effectively because you you said this um also with with starting the starting this podcast right of the antioch podcast you said the i wrote it down that it it's a it was a weird thing to do as a white guy and i feel like that is that rings really true i know it does for me uh and i think it does for a lot of people out there uh in in our place that it's like this is this is an awkward, uncomfortable time and discussion to be having. So how do we do this effectively? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it depends on how you define effectively. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of us as white folks, like we don't want to make mistakes, Hmm. 
and the reality is that we're going to make a lot of them. And so to me, like I would describe myself as, as a very imperfect ally Hmm. in some ways I shouldn't be fully trusted, but I think in some ways by, by saying that it makes you a little bit more trusted that like you realize, like I'm a learner, I'm, I'm not an expert and I'm trying to get better at learning, but I'm, I'm going to also get it really, really awkwardly wrong. Hmm. And let's see, I was having a conversation this morning over text with somebody and I was saying like, I oftentimes as a white person want to get credit for my intentions. And there's something to be said for what I intend to do, but I really need to think about my impact. And impact is something that's totally separate from my intentions. So while my heart might be good, sometimes the way I say things, the things I overlook, um, I end up hurting people. Hmm. And that's part of the journey of being an ally is that you're actually going to hurt the people you you want to be more caring towards and in some ways like this really humble journey like i found out that like people still love me Hmm. who i've hurt and i'm not necessarily the hero of the story in some ways, like I find out that like the people that I'm trying not to hurt are actually much more the hero than I am. But I probably entered the journey thinking that I would be the hero. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sh- So y- you said humble in there and like, that was something for my discussion with Susie that like stuck out when I was asking her, I was like, how do we how do we have these difficult conversations about race? And the first thing that she said was with humility. Um, and I think that like, that's so spot on that we like, it's almost like this, like diff really difficult aspect of like taking our defenses down, which is like this, the immediate reaction like that's like oh like if i said something wrong i've i've got to i've got to defend it i've got to um make up an excuse for it but humility is acknowledging that is listening when when people point out and like and like hopefully point out with grace and at least that has been my experience with the people that have talked to me about these things is i've just seen such like you said with the hero thing I've seen such loving examples, um, especially for uh, my friends who are brothers and sisters in Christ that aren't white, of just grace, of like, yeah, you, you're just showing so much grace and compassion that the, the fact that you constantly hear these things that come out of my mouth and other people's mouth that are just kind of ignorant and stupid, and the way that you respond to them with such compassion and gentleness and grace to me is such an example of of christ um and how we as christians should be and um but yeah on the other end of that is this we need to have humility to be able to say i was wrong uh and to be able to try and 
like you said, learn and better ourselves and progressively, hopefully stop making those mistakes. I, I regularly get it wrong. Um, pretty routinely. And the more I learn to, um, recognize like, okay, here's one of the spots where I tend to get hung up. Usually it's me getting emotional um, or imagining something bad is going to happen and responding defensively. The amount of self-knowledge that I'm developing just leads me to, to realize there's another layer under that, you know, it's, and I keep peeling back layers and layers and I'm, I'm convinced that I'm a very sin-filled person. Hmm. And I also believe that everybody else on the planet is too. And approaching it that way, um, when I do that, I'm much more likely to be successful and to be the better version of myself. And I fully recognize that sometimes, especially if I'm emotionally tired, um, I'm going to be the worst version of myself and I'm probably going to throw gasoline on a burning fire. Yeah, And I'm, I'm learning to be wise about saying that up front that like I'm not in a place to do this well today, but I would like to do it later and I want to give you my best. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. hard because I don't like telling people that that I'm tired or that I'm weak or that I'm imperfect. Uh, that's really it makes it hard on my ego, to be honest. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad we're talking about this because one of the questions that I wanted to ask um, with, for us having this discussion, us in a, in a general sense, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is like, is there room for error? Is there room for mistakes? Because, and yeah, and, and I see you nodding your head that, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And like there, we have to acknowledge that, right? That they're like, like you said, we're, we're going to fumble. We're, we're, I mean, our, our, our stumbling may be like stumbling. That's literally like rolling down an entire mountain because it, it was so big, but so there is room for error, but I feel like that's, that's a question we have to ask because I think, I know I've been in this place and I know from talking to other people that they've been in this place that there's this like this weight holding us back from even engaging uh, in discussions on race because we're afraid of making mistakes and there can be this like this really good side to that that we're afraid of making errors because like like you just spoke to like when we make mistakes, often it can hurt somebody else. And so maybe we're afraid to engage in this because we're afraid of the dumb things that might come out of our mouth um, and we don't want to hurt somebody. So we we refrain from being a part of the conversation. Right. Uh, we don't like conflict. We don't, we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to hurt somebody. Um, there are some... Th aspects of whiteness though that play into this and and when i say whiteness i'm not talking about sp skin pigmentation exactly mm. um, i'm talking about culture mm. so that doesn't mean that every white person on the planet does this but most of us have been acculturated to think of certain things as being just normal or like this is just the way 
people in quotes do things. People usually meaning white people because that's our experience base. Most white folks don't have a lot of deep enough relationships with people of color to even be able to globalize about this. So that's why we think it's normal. I mean, the research is out there that most white people, if they have, you know, 10 friends, they might have one that is a person of color, might. But most people of color have two or three close, intimate friends who are white. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to better understand us and they have to live by our rules in general all the time. So they already kind of have quite a learning advantage over white folks in navigating whiteness. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise you wouldn't survive. I mean, you just, you just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of this fear of making mistakes is, and avoiding conflict is kind of two core aspects of whiteness that if you're going to try to go on a, on a reconciliation or anti-racism journey, you're going to have to deal with it almost immediately. And it, and it goes against some of the things that we're told uh, culturally as white people that like talking about controversial things is bad. You know, it's like picking a fight or you're, if we're going to be Christian about it, like we'll say like, oh, it's divisive. And so we, we tell one another that like, oh, we shouldn't do divisive things. That's causing a rift in the church. The problem is that if you're a person of color, you already are feeling oppressed by not talking about it. So actually talking about it has the potential of making things better. And that's sort of like this weird reverse magic that talking about the thing you think is going to make it worse could make it better. And once that kind of makes its way home, it's easier to go into those conversations. But the other thing is about being an expert. And as white folks, like the way I think about it is racism is an elective class for us. But if you're a person of color, by the time you're an adult, you have earned your PhD in, in racism. And not, not by choice. No, no, you just were drafted into it. Yeah. And so like as, as a white male, I have to realize that like, if I'm getting involved in this, like I might be taking a lot of elective courses. I might even be able to get a minor in this. You know, maybe if I work my whole life, I might get a bachelor's degree, but I'm still going to be decades and decades behind somebody. And I have to approach it that way, that I need to do more question asking than challenging. We white people like to do these yeah buts where we hear somebody say something and then we want to cut in and say, yeah, but what about this? Or yeah, but isn't this this? You know, when we start yabbing, we're not listening anymore. And those are things that we need to perhaps ask a question about, like, help me understand this more. Um, for example, like, I don't understand why you're so concerned about white cops killing black people than black people killing black people. If that's something you really have questions about, to not phrase it in this argumentative way, but to say like, like, I don't really know. And I'm wondering 
Like, yeah. like why is this where the emotional weight is? And then listening to the answer without challenging somebody. That's, that's hard to do. As white folks, we aren't usually told what our habits are, but the yeah, but habit is a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's that listening. And it almost, I know for me, that's something that is a challenge. Um, growing up in, uh, I'm, I'm going to amen that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like for, for me, like, so growing up in New York, at least in the, the, the culture that I grew up in, it was very much a, um, while somebody is talking, you're thinking about your response and at any point, <laughs> and I still do this and I have to like recognize that about myself and like say, whoa, whoa Mitch, shut up, let them finish. Like, and growing up in the culture that I did, it wasn't even seen as a rude thing because everybody around me was doing that. It was just like loud, 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 talk, 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 interject, interject, interject. And that's like how you had conversations that, but honestly, that's not, that's not a great way to have a conversation. And that's, that's everybody trying to hear themselves and loving to hear themselves. And, um, as you said in this conversation, like we're not the ones to be leading this conversation. We need to be listening. Uh, you talked about like, yeah, we're we're always going to be behind in in um, having a having a major, having a minor, right? But but at the same time, one of the things that I constantly uh, have been hearing a lament from um, from both people that I know personally and just different voices. Um, of whether it's like speakers or authors that are people of color is this lament that people who are part of the white culture uh, constantly do not take the time to educate themselves. Correct. Um, which a huge part of that is is listening. And so educating ourselves is extremely important is something that like I've been convicted in in listening to these voices. But we we just constantly need to be where where you're talking about. We're recognizing that yeah, you can read your books, you can listen to those speakers, um, but if you're getting to that point where you're like, all right, I've done enough, it's time for me to step up and start, you know, taking taking the reins here i think that we're we've reached a dangerous point so one of the other contributors on the antioch podcast his his name is reggie smith he's a, a pastor and from talking with him and actually many other leaders as well that i've gotten to listen to i have watched how their speech patterns are and the other thing I didn't tell you is that I used to be a therapist. Hmm. So tuning into how people's body language and the way that they talk, um, that's something that, that I was kind of professionally trained to do. Like the listening skills piece of being a therapist, that is, that is a bit of an advantage because um, we actually practice doing it in school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then you had to do it for your job or you couldn't stay employed. And asking questions, right? That's a that's a huge aspect. Yeah, it's a huge yeah. part. And I watch him 
and it's caused me to think a lot about the fruit of the spirit. Hmm. Um, especially about like, if we were going to talk about like, like biblical culture. So, I mean, the church in acts is the story of how the church went from a monoculture to a multiculture and they had rules of engagement you know, all the way through, but like all these passages that were, were Paul's writing to a church, I mean, almost all of Paul's letters are written to multi-ethnic communities, except for just a, a very small number. And mm -hmm. so these things about like, well, you know, humility or be slow to anger, you know, all these qualities, they're about how we relate to each other. And especially in conversations about diversity, I mean, the early church, I'm not trying to be gross, but like a big thing that Hebrews thought about was like, what was going on under somebody's tunic? Hmm. And I'm sure that was not a, a comfortable conversation to have is like, I would like to, you know, not to be weird, but like, do you have a foreskin? Yeah. And they were taught that this was disgusting and that you know, this has to go. This is the sign that you take your faith seriously. And to to wrap your mind around the idea that there might be other ways to do this. And this thing that you think is central to your identity statement as a believer is an optional thing. I mean, that that must have taken an, an inordinate amount of, of tact to be able to navigate those kind of conversations or like who's the small group that gets the Roman centurion. I mean, they must've had disagreements about the use of power, you know, the use of force in the government, you know, and, and they were supposed to be a church together. The early church had all kinds of discussions about diversity. And I swear the fruit of the spirit is one of those markers that like when our lives are full of these things, we are much better able to have conversations about diversity issues than if we're coming in, you know, where we are quick to speak and slow to listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's uh it's it's so interesting to me how many like I don't know that people would like actively like actually say this, but I do come across uh, plenty of Christians that I feel like they're, they're reading an understanding of when they read the life of Jesus or the words of Paul in light of the world that we're living in today is, well, they, I mean, they didn't, they didn't deal with these kind of things. Like, like, the, yeah, like Jesus said, love your enemies. But I mean, like, he wasn't living in a world with ISIS. He wasn't living in a world with, with this or with that, right? Like, and I go, yeah, sure, that that could be the truth if you water down the Gospels to the point where you're not looking at the context of the world that Jesus was living in and Paul was living in. But when you look at that context of what is really going on, um, it's it's very apparent that Jesus knew knew what he was saying when he said words like "love your enemies." That that Paul knew what he was addressing when he said, "In the body of Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female." Like these are not just flippant statements. That it's just like they they wrote or said 
easily because there was no resistance in the culture that they were in. Um, and maybe that may, for me, like that's something that like when we're talking about this discussion of being allies um, is honestly like a heavy weight for me as a pastor. Um, and, and for, for you, Eric, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because like for anybody listening that is a pastor, like where, where do, especially for those of us who, who are, who are white pastors, like where does, where do we fall in this of being allies? Because there is this aspect for us that like we are leaders in our faith communities, right? Um, so how do we balance this that it's like, I'm not supposed to have the be taking the reins in this, but at the same time, I'm also a leader in my community, and people are looking at me to some degree to take the reins. <laughs> so, how do we how do we handle that? How do we how do we do that correctly? That's a really good question. Um, I think about this one a lot. It honestly was the thing that I ran into immediately when I realized that the podcast that I had initially set out to do needed to be something else and that I wasn't the person who was best equipped to handle it. Hmm. So I want to tell that story a second and then I'm going to circle back um, to my friend, Joe, who did something this week that I want to throw in. So when I started doing the Antioch podcast, it was going to be a podcast for just for my church that was going to be for people who couldn't make it to worship leader training. And it would be kind of like pro tips on how to do multi-ethnic worship. And that was what we had trainings once a month on Saturdays for with our church was that, you know, how do we do this? It's not something that comes easily to people. It means that you have to kind of know multiple worship genres and, make wise choices about how do we include songs and sounds that remind people of their, of a place of home, uh, a musical place of home where they can see themselves reflected both in the singers and in the song choices that like God affirms your, your ethnicity, your, you know, your personness, not just your, your spirit, but your physical body and God loves it. And we realized almost immediately that we couldn't have these conversations without talking about racial justice. And so when we had to make the shift to a podcast talking about why racial justice is central to understanding the gospel, it became very clear that me as someone from the dominant culture and dominant gender for that matter, really only could tell part of the story well. And it's a part that needs to be told, but it's not the complete picture. I needed people who weren't me to really do this well. And it was right after Trump was elected and most of the people I knew who were doing anti-racism work were feeling burnt out and just couldn't do more. And I had this conversation with an African-American friend of mine who had been my mentor for a while. and. She said, um, maybe God wants you to carry the ball for a while, but not forever. And that, that was very wise. Um, so I've always kind of approached these things as like, we need journey partners 
but I think one of the pieces that we as white leaders can do is to be open about when we've gotten it wrong. I think that's where white people really could take a good lead is in modeling humility. So my friend Joe, um, Joseph Kailama, he is a social work professor at Calvin College or Calvin University, sorry. And <laughs> he wrote this article this week about some students that he had who were asking, who had been talking class about defunding the police, which is one of those things that's in, in the news right now. So everybody's kind of heard about it. Not, yeah, not divisive at all. <laughs> no, totally not. And he teaches sociology and social work. And so this had come up in class a few times. And he said, the first time I heard this, I just dismissed it outright as ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. When you, when you hear that, that just phrase without any sort of clarity, without any sort of conversation behind it, like, like many things, you get hit with it like a rock and you're like, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, our white defensiveness is almost set up to discount anything that seems the least bit radical mm -hmm. um, because it, we, we see it as a threat, as a safety threat. That's how we've been taught to think about things like this. And we rarely admit it to ourselves. And But he, he says, like, I dismissed it outright. And then I had to circle back. And I thought, these are my students. And I'm not just hearing it from one person. I'm hearing it from multiple people. And I know them to be thoughtful people hmm. who, in this issue, we don't see eye to eye. And I really needed to challenge myself to listen more to what they were saying. And then he wrote this long article about like what they challenged me to do was to have a bigger theological imagination about how, how Christians enact change. And he said, like, I had been taught that we change things from within institutions, but that there's a whole history of people that I don't think of who change things from outside institutions and that God can be at work in both. And what I liked about it wasn't just that he wrote about history that I didn't know and did it in a really thoughtful way, but he also said right up front, I was, I mean, he didn't say it that clearly, but he's like, but I was wrong. And here was my gut reaction. And then when I thought about it, I, they actually kind of won me over. And I think if we're going to lead as white people who are learners, to set the emotional tone for how to do this well, how to acknowledge like this was, this was my first reaction. And then I sat with it and this is my reaction now. And look at other places where, you know, the disciples got it wrong all mm. the time. Mm. Like even like right before Jesus goes to heaven, I always think of them that they're like the kids in the backseat of the car that are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> and so they're like, well, Jesus, now is the time. Are you going to like kick the Romans? You know, are, is this time for the Hebrew revolution? That's basically what they're asking him. And I swear he did like an eye roll. And then he's like, oh, you guys, seriously. Like I literally came back from the dead. You've got to see this is about something different. Yeah, And then he's like, I, I think he goes up to heaven and he 
talks to God. He's like, you got to send somebody to help them. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not getting it. And I'm like, I will send my helper to you, but yeah. literally stay home. Don't touch anything until I send my helper to you because you're going to mess it up. If Wait you here. Do this yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But I think that's part of it is, is to lead by example of how to be a learner. And honestly, that, again, I feel like everything we're talking about, this is not, this is not the first reaction uh, that comes to our, to our minds and to our hearts when, when we get hit with any of this stuff. Like, the, it's, it's needing to do that pause, listen, process, and, and, yeah, our first reaction is usually not the best one because as pastors both both honestly from a like congregational point but also as putting it on ourselves uh it's not a a natural thing for a lot of pastors to to model humility in the yeah, I, d- I didn't do this right and I I said this wrong or I didn't do enough. It should be like that. We should certainly, like, as churches, as Christians, we should recognize our pastors are human and they're gonna they're gonna make mistakes all the time. And I love that example of you you're bringing up like the disciples because I mean Peter, Peter, yeah, Peter <laughs> calls Jesus Lord, and there's that amazing moment of that. Peter also gets told by Jesus, "Get behind me, Satan!" And comes, well, and Peter's like the leader. <laughs> well, we love Peter because he's the yeah. foot in the mouth disciple, and everybody yeah, can identify with that guy. Like, you know, he jumps out of the boat to walk on the on the lake. Like, who does mm. that? Like, what? Like, Mister No Forethought at all? Yeah. You know, and he gets out there a little ways, and then he's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm walking on water." <laughs> I mean, What'd that's I so human. That is human nature through and through is to like I doing something without thinking first and then I flip out about it and I need to be rescued by somebody who's not me but that's discipleship I mean honestly like if so as a therapist whenever it's sort of the thing that, that I always tell my kids like call yourself out on your own mistakes you know, don't make somebody have to tell on you. <laughs> There's something beautiful when somebody has mm. sell, has insight and chooses to be vulnerable. The room gets quiet. People are amazingly attentive. And when we use ourselves as the example of a greater principle, it's sort of like why people like reading memoirs. You know, because it's like, it's not a story about a person. These are stories about ideas where that person is the chief metaphor. Where we, we get to exemplify what does it mean to be a Christian living in a complex world, trying to live the way that God told us to live. Because like, Honestly, I think very few times people want to hear somebody's hero story. They want to hear about when you screwed up Hmm. and how you recovered. That's the story that everybody really wants to know because all of us think about the times we screw up way more than that we've got it right. Yeah. And we need to know that other people screw up and survive 
and that God's with them and uses them and that that's not the end of the story. Yeah. That's, those are the encouraging stories that help us as people to go and move forward. I think when, when others show that they mess up and tell that they mess up and like show that vulnerable aspect and uh, side of humility hearing a story of uh, I'm so great and I did this all right and like uh, you should all know that like beyond the fact that like that can come off as condescending and narcissistic like it's just this like do it this way uh, and when we are recognizing that you know I I don't have this all figured out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's certain those stories can't certainly for the most part are not going to come off as encouraging of like, yeah, I'm, I mess up too. Let's mess up together and and try to encourage each other and build each other up and learn, um, and keep moving forward together, understanding, uh, that we're going to trip. We're, we're going to keep messing up, but hopefully if we do this together, we can do it better and we can keep growing. Yeah. It, I mean, for me, I think about it as sobriety work that like if we believe that racism is sin and that we're all sinful people like i've learned things from racism i have automatic thoughts that are racist hmm. um you know or just assumptions or, or or any of that and like and i don't want to sin I, but i also need to get sober from it and i can't get sober if i'm in denial and i can't get sober if i'm defensive i i need to be able to talk about it and talk about it with other sinful people who are also trying not to be sinful. And maybe we can try to get sober together. I think that's supposed to be the church. Yeah. So yeah, that, that leads me into a a really, um, uh, I think a really important question that has to do with this being an ally. And like, honestly, like this, like I'd, I'd love to hear like your perspective as a pastor, as a Christian, as somebody who's, who is white, like there, there are, we've talked a lot about like things that people say, right. That like can be harmful. I have heard many, and I'm just going to focus on, on the Christian community right now, but I've heard people say, yeah, racism is a problem, but it's a problem that we've, we've dealt with. Like at this point, the best way to handle this is not addressing it. Like, that's the best thing. I've heard uh, when we're talking about police brutality, um, people love to share their statistics that, that back up their narrative. I, he- I hear all these different narratives from people. When, when we are faced with especially others who are also white, especially others who are also within the church, part of the body of Christ. And these are narratives that they're telling and like, almost like this, just like, why are we, why are we still talking about this? Why are you as a pastor addressing this? Isn't it like, can't we move on? I'm not racist. Like I have it. I didn't like do this. I didn't do that. How, like, how do we react to those conversations because as a pastor I go and as a Christian <laughs> I just go the right thing to do certainly isn't to not address it 
to not address those people. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts? That's the really hard work. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Um, when I'm in my emotion mind, I want to shame or punish people mm. who think like that. Uh, and for me, I'm I have give to give you an amen there because <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's I'm being honest about it because I can't choose to act differently if I'm not honest first about what I mm. want to do so that I can be really clear about doing something different. Um, so for me, that means choosing when to have the conversation. When I'm more likely to be in a good emotional space where, I, where I'm very mindful of trying not to do that and kind of like having any other difficult conversation, I might have to circle back afterwards to apologize for the way I did something instead of, <laughs> you know, if my, if my tone is off, um, I need to own that and apologize for that. If the content is off, that's a different kind of apology. And I'm not apologizing for having a difficult conversation because we don't get sober from sin without difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I like to frame it as, do you think racism is a sin or not? Because almost everybody will say, yes, I think it's a sin. Just like almost everybody says, I'm not a racist. But if we think it is a sin, and our culture was shaped by this sin, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of historical digging <laughs> to kind of say like, well, it had some impact in the United States. Most reasonable people would, would go there. Say like, well, even if I don't recognize it yet, if I knew that I was doing something that hurt someone, would I want to do differently? Hmm. And so when I have people in my congregation, and I can't say that I do this successfully all the time, but I will ask people, did you know questions? Like, did you know that this, I'll put it this way, this, this singular black person who espouses very conservative ideology against other black people, <laughs> whose video you are now posting on your Facebook wall, yeah. did you realize that this person is, is quite, is perceived as very hurtful in the black community? Or did you know that, that they are perceived as not representative of, of most, you know, of black thought leaders? That this person is an outlier. Um, I'm wondering what would, have, what would happen if you ran this video or this post or this idea past 20 black people, if we're talking about something that's anti-black racism, you know, or when somebody asked my wife who is Chinese, um, do you think it's, it's bad when Donald Trump calls COVID-19 the, the China virus yeah. or Kung flu, you Kung know? Flu, yeah. and, and when they say yes, 
you know, not to argue back and to say, I didn't know that that was so hurtful. You know, like those are yeah. like a lot of people aren't going to necessarily be convinced from an argument. They're going to label you as being on one side or another. So arguments are really not very persuasive. A question might be if they can arrive at the answer on their own. But sometimes, I mean, from a pastoral perspective, if I was going to um, try to use my office to affect change, I think I would come at it from saying like, do you, do you realize that some of these opinions that you're talking about, um, that they're very hurtful to people who are non-white. And is that, is that really what you want to do? It, it, you know, it, do you find this to be making the church a place that's welcoming to everyone? Or is, or is there something else going on here? Um, it can be tricky for some Christians to tease apart Christianity and Republicanism right now because they've linked Christianity with pro-life and pro-life policy with Republicanism and have stopped being critical thinkers about other planks of the, of conservatism or the Republican platform. And to say that like, there may be some good ideas here, but it doesn't make, it doesn't make this earthly power something that's beyond the stain of sin, just like any institution. Every institution is filled with sinful people and, you know, Democrats, Republicans alike. But we in the, in the white church have tended for too long to be uncritical of the Republican party. And so we can really be led astray in some very dangerous and harmful ways that won't actually serve the church very well in the long run. I mean, right now, the majority of Christians in the United States are not white in 2016 that that stopped being the case and you know in a couple decades white people won't be the majority in the united states either Mm -hmm. so for white christians it's very very important to learn how to be part of a brown church in fact if the faith is going to survive that white people are going to have to learn how to be increasingly adaptable to this because that's where the future of our faith is just from a population standpoint Hmm. you know and that obviously shouldn't be the persuasive argument we should be doing it because we love people not because we're worried about our own survival and all of this i think um just brings the truth of what the Bible says uh, to be so apparent when Jesus tells his disciples f- to follow him, to, to pick, up, pick up their cross and follow him, uh, that discipleship, true discipleship, true, t- true following Christ, it's not laid out to be an easy road. In fact, it's laid out to be the more difficult by far road. And I think that this is, it's, it's so true with what you're speaking to with 
You know, I just think of, um, we are called to speak the truth, but we're called to speak the truth in love. Uh, everything that you were saying reminded me of, um, I know you guys did this book for the podcast. Me and my wife have just started reading it, uh, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And at the beginning of his book, I wrote this quote down that he says, the goal is to build up the body of Christ by speaking the truth of love, even if that truth comes at the price of pain. Um, and like we we can't shy away from these conversations. We we can't sh- we shouldn't shy away both as fellow Christians, but for for you, for me, for other pastors as pastors, when we hear voices saying these things in our congregation in the church we we shouldn't ignore it we should we should speak the truth in love but honestly that's hard because i'm right there with you when it's like my initial reaction is to jump down somebody's throat a lot of the time when some of these things are are said but you spoke about the the fruits of the spirit and like i keep coming back to the one that is gentleness and i'm like all right and is that something that i am is that a fruit that I am bearing? Is that something that I am having in these conversations with people, even if they make me mad? <laughs> and even if even if they're making me mad for the right reason, because I don't want other people to be hurt by the things that they're saying, am I completely throwing aside uh, that person and just not caring about how I react to them? And, and a gentle word, honestly, like more and more Paul's words about responding to people in love uh, will be like throwing burning coals on their head has been something that has been on my mind a lot lately because what I have noticed in my own personal life is when I, when I jump on somebody uh, as my first reaction and just don't react in the right way and come at it uh, in a whether it's condescending or angry way, the conversation and the way that I get a response from that is extremely different than when I respond, kind of like you're saying, with one, gentle questions, uh, with bringing a humanity to the to the issues that are being discussed. And I, I do find that questions are extremely effective. Uh, and sometimes the conversations that I want to, that I end up having by taking a step back and not responding right away and thinking about it ends up just asking question after question after question, um, and seeing where that goes. Uh, but doing it gently, I, I, I find that that path leads to far greater results of softening of hearts than just jumping on top of something and just being like, this is why I'm right. This is why you're wrong. You need to listen to me because I've read this book and I've heard this person speak again because I'm more educated in this than you are. Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, Hmm. as you're talking, I mean, like all the things that you're saying, what's running through my mental Rolodex right now is like all the times recently, because I've had so many times recently with what's going on in the news that I haven't done this very well. And I've done it well a number of times too. So don't, I mean, don't read too much into it, but like, (laughs) I remember my mistakes, you know, my, 
I wince when I think about the time that I, that I was much more emotional than I needed to be, even if it was very understandable why I was or where I started out with good focus and then, and then lost it, you know, and just, you know, yelled or said, tried to say something snarky that I thought would kind of be smart, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, if it's written or texted, where like, this could be read two ways. If someone tried to confront yeah. me on it, I could duck. Yeah. You know, I'm like, that's, I'm trying not to be that person. Sometimes I'm still that person. I'm that person far too often, to be honest. When when we're talking about social media or text, you're right. Like there's this, I don't know. The, uh, even Even if I'm trying my darndest to be like, was that response gentle? It's hard with with that format which is why i think that we we certainly not to say that we can't have conversations over social media and text because those conversations are happening and sometimes i go yeah no we we need to like engage in those conversations mm-hmm. so that it's not just one voice uh one message so that even and for me a big thing is i i i don't want like people who are not christians to just see one message from from Christianity being poured out there on, on those platforms. But if we're just having the conversations there, that's not right. Like we do need to be face to face. We do need to like let other people see our hearts um, and hear our words. Yeah. Here's something to think about. And I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I know that in my congregation and in lots of congregations, um, we as leaders do a lot of emotional hand wringing about hurting the feelings of white people, conservative people. Oftentimes, these folks happen to have much more money, and they tend to be good tithers. Mm. And we don't usually want to talk about it like that, but I find that I'm more comfortable. The more I get used to admitting that, um, I can say that. I haven't too often worried that like, wow, people with not a lot of financial assets who came in one Sunday and then didn't come back. I wasn't really concerned, Hmm. but if I know that somebody owns a business and they're coming to church, I'm very invested in trying to make sure they stay. And when I started thinking about being out loud about being anti-racist in church. I had people in one instance, get up in the middle of a service, walk out and send me a really nasty letter and they haven't been back. Um, And they were wealthy, white, good tithers. And the thing is they found another church quite easily to go to. You know who's not finding a church that they can go to right now? It's people who are out in the street protesting because their idea of what God is, who God loves, is not people like them. And they're angry and mad and really hurt. And when I watch what happened in Acts, the first people. I mean, it's like you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Immediately to the people you think are half-breeds 
and disgusting, and then to the country that is oppressing you. And immediately, the Holy Spirit sends people out to reach the people who don't share the beliefs of the Jews. And I'm wondering if there's a challenge to the church now where if we talked about biblical anti-racism, because it's biblical, it's not hard to find. And if we were more brave about, okay, this is a, this is a problem within conservatism, but also liberalism about how racism has been masked. And if we start talking about this, if we don't become a more attractional community to the very people who need Jesus the most right now, who are also very, very concerned about the world going to hell in a handbag and are trying to do something about it. If they see that God cares, the church, the church is going to be reaching people that really need to find out that, you know what, when they get it wrong too, because they will, that they're met with the fruit of the spirit, that they, that they're met with a God of grace and compassion who cares about justice and says, there is such a thing as right and wrong. And you know that because otherwise you wouldn't be mad and protesting because you know what evil looks like, but the evil is in us too. You know, that's, that's a powerful message. That's a core message of the gospel. And, and I think that's where we as church leaders, we need to be less afraid of losing hmm you know, the people who are the people we spend a lot of time handering you about and really be more concerned about the people who don't have a church. Yeah, no, that, you know what I mean? That's I, I do. I, how many times do we hear right now? Uh, 2020, how's your 2020 going? And people laugh, (laughs) right? Cause it's like, Oh gosh. Yeah. We got, (laughs) we got riots. We got protests. We got, um, murder hornets. We got coronavirus. We got all this stuff. It's it's been a year, um, and all I can think about is that in in times of incredible difficulty and 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 darkness and pain, not I, not to say that the gospel isn't good news always because it is, but if you think about the gospel and the sense of like a light in the darkness, I think the light is going to shine even brighter when it's, when it's the real gospel message during times of extreme darkness and pain. And, um, which, which is honestly why I think I get so frustrated and angry. And my, my reaction is to like, is to throw out those snarky comments or those condescending comments when I see other Christians saying things that in my mind is damaging to that oh, yeah. true gospel message. Um, but I, I, oh my gosh, I resonate with everything that you say so much. And I think that as, as the church, if we were to truly latch on to the, the whole gospel, every like that we would be able to, be such such a, a light and ambassadors for for God that we're called to be. I wanna I wanna wrap this up with one uh, one last thing that I wanted to ask you. Um, 
So with all of this discussion, and with the discussion about being an ally, how, how prevalent, how important is the words of Christ when he shares words about the greatest commandment is love, love God, second, second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, and as you start to piece together what that means by his other teachings when he talks about the the Good Samaritan, when he talks about loving your enemy, um, how does that play a part in all of this? Jesus' words of love thy neighbor. Well, for me, I really like that particular scripture passage when thinking about policy. Hmm. Um, so if sinful people band together sometimes and make sinful institutions and every institution made by people has some sin in it. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Sometimes we make decisions that are wrong. Quite, quite often there are aspects of this kind of thing. So to me, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is kind of the smell test for policy. Does, does policy disadvantage or even hurt or oppress my neighbor more than myself? Hmm. And not, let's not talk about intention. Let's talk about impact. Like, what is the impact of policy? Um, there's a, a, a thought leader at Ibram X. Kendi, and he talks about what well, his definition of racism is pertinent to policy. He says a racist policy is something that has a disproportionately negative racial impact on communities of color. And it has nothing to do with intent and everything to do with impact. So someone could have the, the best motives in the world and still do, you know, still make a policy that's deeply racist, which is so human that like a lot of times people will do things thinking it's going to go one way and you find out like, wow, I was wrong. And doubling down actually isn't going to help. Like I have to just call it for what it is that like, this is not coming out the way it is. Like if you're a parent, you know this, that like you can't discipline every child exactly the same way because they're going to respond to it differently. One kid's more stubborn than another. One kid has a you know softer heart than another. One is going to be more prone to cry and the other to yell, you know, you have to, you have to be flexible. And so when I'm loving my neighbor as myself, am I using my resources to love my neighbor as myself, you know, where I spend my money, the things that I'm reading, are they causing me to love my neighbor or to love myself when I'm voting? Am I loving my neighbor or myself? Hmm. When I'm paying my taxes, am I loving my neighbor or am I loving myself? Hmm. You know, where I send my kids to school, am I choosing to do something that loves my neighbor or love myself? Those are hard questions, but they're really important. And sometimes it's not a right or a wrong but it is important to think through how is this going to affect my neighbor as myself? And as Christians, I think we're supposed to do that all the time. Like 
Yeah. How, you know, if right now wearing a mask is a great way to love your neighbor as yourself because it doesn't keep you from getting COVID-19, but it certainly makes it a lot more difficult for your neighbor to get it. And I, and I think we need to be, you know, live with masks on our hearts where we're trying our, our best not to inflict pain or oppression on our neighbors as ourselves. And I don't know, I think it just gets at the heart of the gospel. Hmm. Sometimes yeah. we use kingdom language to, to dress up our, our sinful BS. And we talk about <laughs> like, like I'm doing this to protect the kingdom of God. A lot of times that's code for self-interest. Not always, but but a lot of times. And the kingdom of God is very little to do with people and people, with me and people like me. And it has everything to do with the broadness and the breadth of humanity. Hmm. And, and so that's, I mean, that's kingdom thinking is to think about how does every tongue, tribe, and nation come to know God. And it's hard to know the grace of God when you're being oppressed by systems. In fact, you, it's very difficult to understand graciousness at all when mostly life gives you suffering. So it, I don't know. I just kind of like the more equitable we can make the world, the more people can experience grace and then be like, wow, I, I want to know a God like this. Yeah. Those are really, really great, albeit hard questions to be asking. And I think you're right. Like, it's very clear. When Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? Love your God. And then the second being like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, it, that illustrates to me that, yeah, we need to be living constantly with those two things in mind. And why does he say the second is like it? The well, second the, commandment is like yeah. the first. Like it comes back to this idea of every person being made in the image of God. And so to, to sin against our fellow human, to hate our fellow human is hating someone made in that image. Um, and and for me the the his words on loving loving your enemy is something that like constantly I have to keep going back to, um, because I think uh, in in the church we've watered that down so much of what your enemy is like it's so like as a youth pastor I talk to my students about it and it's like I know that their initial thought is like oh like the bully in school or, and that's true. That's absolutely true. But like as adults, like what, what is, what does loving your enemy mean when it comes down to like, who is your enemy? And, and honestly, for me, I, I'll be honest in this discussion, I've had to recognize something uncomfortable uh, in this truth uh, that it pushes me in a difficult direction, which is, and this, this may be controversial, but it certainly wouldn't be the first thing on this podcast. But for me, like, I recognize that sometimes my enemies are other Christians <laughs> in my own heart. And and I can recognize that and say, all right, yeah, honestly, the things that they're saying, like, in my heart, they are my enemies. Okay. So now what? 
because Jesus says love them. Jesus says love them because that's the only way to be perfect or what I like the a better translation in my mind is complete like God is complete like this wholeness like this wholeness of like if we are to be like God we need to be loving everyone uh, and loving doesn't doesn't mean that we just let things lie it means we address things because we love them it means we have difficult conversations and you you said that like talking about going to people within the church that are saying things that rub us the wrong way that that's the hard work and i've recognized as a pastor that to me is the the missions field i don't want to go to too often yeah it's people who are christians that are saying things that bother me but that's a missions field that i feel that i need to go to <laughs> that that is where jesus went first hmm. it, which is <laughs> can i say it, it sucks is that okay? Yeah. Otherwise, do I have to yeah. edit that out? Yeah, absolutely. You can see Because it. <laughs> <laughs> it does suck. <laughs> it does. And and that's where I have some of the hardest problem, too, because it means that somebody, in some ways, I feel like they have hurt me. Hmm. And I don't want to let go of that because it means I have to be nice to somebody that hurt me or that embarrassed me or who, you know, I think reflects badly on something I love. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So like, I don't know, for me, the, I, I used to have this on a sticky note. I probably should put it back up on my wall, but like where I wrote Donald Trump gets as much unmerited grace as me. Hmm. And for me, being involved with anti-racism work, like this presidency has caused more trouble than any in recent memory, just from the volume of offensive things that are said. Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting for me to hate him because he hurts people I love and I feel myself emotionally responding constantly to these um, sudden offensive things that are all over the news for a day or two. I'm like, I would like to be able to listen to the news and just be curious about the world and find out what's happening in this <laughs> great, big, beautiful world and not be constantly offended. Hmm. And God made him, And that's really hard for me to wrap my mind around how that God still loves somebody that rubs me the wrong way almost every day. And to do the difficult thing, which is to not stay, stay silent as a, as a Christian right. when things are said or to defend things because, well, he says he's a Christian, uh, which to me, I go, yeah, he says he's a Christian. That's why we need to be even more on top of calling out things that he says that are against the gospel and the word of God. But the difficult thing is, and I'm right there with you, doing that and not myself falling into slandering, falling into mockery, falling into things that honestly I, I, I want to uh, mm -hmm. because anger starts welling up in my own heart. 
Yeah, I have that too, all the time. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for joining me uh, today for this conversation. I hope that um, I know that it was it was helpful for me. It was encouraging. Um, I hope that for anyone listening, uh, that it was the same. I hope that we can keep these things in mind as we go out and we live our lives, whether you're listening and you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, uh, but that we can we can come together, we can have difficult conversations, uh, we can pursue justice together, uh, we can pursue being better ourselves uh, and, and being more humble <laughs> Uh, to be able to achieve that. Um, But yeah, thank you so much just for having this conversation with me. Yeah, it was good for me too. Thanks. Thanks everybody for joining and listening in to this conversation on Faith Beyond Sunday. And a special thanks to Eric for joining me, especially so short notice uh, on this podcast to have this discussion with me. I'm really, really grateful to him for doing that. I'm really grateful to Susie for recommending Eric uh, and just for this conversation in general. If you have enjoyed this episode or you've enjoyed previous episodes or future episodes, I don't know when you're listening, and you would like to show your support to Faith Beyond Sunday, you can tell a friend about the podcast, either this episode or another episode that you enjoyed. You can, on whatever podcast app you listen to us on, you can give us a review. That would help us to reach a broader audience. And if you'd really like to go above and beyond, you can head over to patreon.com, search for Faith Beyond Sunday, and support us there. If you'd like to get in touch with me, write in about a specific episode of the show, let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. You can do so by writing me an email at faithbeyondsunday at gmail.com. Beyond that, I've got nothing else for you. So that is the end of this episode of Faith Beyond Sunday. Until you join me here again, I want to encourage you all to seek after truth, pursue challenging yet peaceful conversations, and always, always love each other. Talk to you soon. Mm